Welcome to Case Closed, the Contingency Fee Podcast. On the show, our team of industry experts interviews contingency fee attorneys. You will discover everything from how they got started to the secrets of their success and what's working in today's marketplace. And now, here's the Case Closed Podcast. Here we are today on Case Closed with Sean Coons, uh, host of Case Closed, certified financial fiduciary. Today, we're here with Betsy Lynch, an attorney. Um, I will let Betsy introduce herself. Betsy, tell us a little bit about yourself, who you are, where you came from, and how you got into your practice. Well, I'm an attorney here in Kansas City, and I specialize in uh, small business clientele. I uh, represent a lot of small businesses in contract and vendor disputes. I practice a lot in bankruptcy court, and I do succession planning, which involves a lot of estate planning for my small business clients. I see. I see. So um, what school did you go to and what made you choose that school? I went to the University of Missouri, Kansas City. Uh, I originally did not want to come up to Kansas City to go to school. I thought I was going to go to Fayetteville, Arkansas and go be a Razorback. But my father convinced me to come up here, take a look at the school, talk to some of the students and the teachers and uh, which I did on my way home, I got lost uh, driving around the uh, nicer areas of town. And I had never seen these huge houses, uh, just neighborhoods upon neighborhoods of these giant homes before. I was from a, I'm from a small town originally. I'm from southeast Missouri, a little town called Sykeston. And in my town, there was only one house that was that big. And here there were just neighborhoods and it felt like the houses were never ending. So I kind of thought that if I could get lost in a neighborhood like that, I could probably deal with Kansas City. (laughs) Yeah. Especially if you get to the Mission Hills area, it's really beautiful down there. Yeah. Yeah. Four car garages were not something that were customary where I come from. (laughs) Yeah. They're like mansions, uh, estates. (laughs) Oh, yeah. So tell us a little bit about the businesses that you serve. What size, uh, what type of businesses? Sure. Small businesses are really relative to the industry. So I have represented everywhere from multi-billion dollar banks, which are relatively small in that industry, to, uh, you know, a Joe the plumber who might be a one-man plumbing plumbing company. Um, my ideal client is probably... Any business that has uh, $5 million or less in revenue and less than 15 employees, Um, I really enjoy, given my background, I come from a very rural area, uh, I really enjoy servicing uh, a lot of blue-collar companies, you know, electricians, plumbers, HVAC companies, anybody who would be a contractor in the real estate industry, those are my ideal clients. I see. So... You probably uh, assist and serve and try to counsel on what type of corporation they could, what type of corporation they should have. How does that process look for you when dealing with clients? Sure. Um, Normally, a client will come to me and nine out of 10 times they think they know what they want. But when they tell me what their goals are and we discuss what their what their real needs are, they usually want need something else. <laughs> um, it kind of depends on 
uh, their personal financial situation. So I ask a lot of questions, not just about a, their business, but I might ask a lot of personal questions about what their, uh, you know, personal assets and liabilities are. I frequently work with an accountant. Um, it's really beneficial if they've already got an established accountant that I can work with to decide uh, what type of entity is going to be best for their personal financial structure. I see. So you have probably have a resource team as well to help you with many things. Um, yes. Which leads us to: uh, Do you do copyrights, trademarks, things like that, or do you have a resource team that helps you with that, or what's that? So like? I've found that if you're a jack of all trades, you are a master of none. And so what I like to do is I draft an engagement letter for pretty much every client that allows me to uh, pull in outside counsel if I need to. And that way, these clients don't have to go farm out an IP issue or farm out a tax issue. I already have those resources. And while I might um, sort of be the bus driver of the entire project and, and the entire mission, there might be certain components of the project that I'll bring in a tax specialist for or an accountant or financial planner, or uh, perhaps it's an IP issue and we want to bring in a patent lawyer just for you know an hour's worth of work. It's nice that those clients have those resources, but it's still, but they're still able to come to me as a one-stop shop, which makes it much more economical for them. I see. Excellent. So you're in Kansas City. You're probably what close to the Crown Center area? Yeah. Yeah. We're at 20th and Grand right here, uh, right by the Western Auto Sign building. Awesome. So you guys, you got to be a sports fan being from Kansas City, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. We're diehard little Chiefs fans over here. My my father-in-law is a former Chiefs player, and he was a linebacker in Super Bowl Four. His name was Jim Lynch, and he's in the Hall of Fame. And so we, uh, you know, I, I married into the craziness and, and sort of was forced to become a big Chiefs fan. Awesome. Awesome. I bet you have some, I bet you you've heard some stories. <laughs> oh, oh yeah. Yeah. Well, and you know, a lot of the stories are painted in the memorabilia and I jokingly, uh, call our, our basement, the Jim Lynch shrine. So there's lots of, uh, uh, chiefs memorabilia. The coolest thing I think we own is this, this poster of big Jim and Willie Lanier and they're walking off the field from the, it's a poster of the longest game in NFL history. I've it's seen actually, that poster. Yeah, that's awesome. It's actually a game they lost. Oh. And that piece of football memorabilia was the only thing my father-in-law ever allowed to be hung up in the house while his kids were growing up there. Oh, really? A, isn't that interesting? Interesting. That's really interesting. Okay, so um, how do you get most of your clients? What's... Uh, how do you approach that and where do they come from and what are you doing to get more clients? For a solid decade, uh, my business has been exclusively referral based. So most people coming to me are coming to me because a friend or another lawyer has told them to come talk to me and they trust that person. But most recently, I hired a marketing company who's done a lot of uh, work on my website and SEO um, work. And so I kind of feel like if you do what you've always done, you're going to get what you've always gotten. So if you want more and you want better, you've got to start thinking differently and exploring new ways of doing things in order to 
really help your business succeed? Yeah, it's, these days it's it's very important that if you don't embrace the change and and try to go with what's happening out there, it's you're going to be left behind for sure. Um, so you had you started as a clerk and and went out and then eventually created your own law firm. That at first that had to be kind of a little bit scary, but uh, what's that process like for you? Uh, and then. You know, if you had to give advice to someone new doing it, what would that advice be? Well, when I was about 30 years old, I had a six-month-old baby. I was married to a stay-at-home dad. And I came home and told my husband that I was going to quit my job today. (laughs) And I was going to open a law practice. And he knew me well enough to know he wasn't going to argue with me about it. But if I had it to do all over again, I probably would have done it sooner. The timing at that point could have been a little better. <laughs> but, you know, if I had any advice to give to a new lawyer, I went out to coffee and lunch and drink with just about every lawyer on the planet I could think of who ran their own law firm when I was about to open. And one piece of advice I was given was that if you work for someone else, you will have income security, but not job security. And if you work for yourself, you'll have job security, but you won't have income security. And you need to understand the difference and you need to figure out which of those situations you can deal with. And at the end of the day, I was willing to bet on me and I knew that failure was not an option. And so I think if new lawyers could trust themselves a little bit, and be willing to bet on themselves a little bit, I think they'd they'd probably succeed a lot further than they ever dreamed. I see. Yeah. Uh, So you act as outside general counsel for any business? Yeah, I actually, uh, I sort of operate as a in-house counsel for businesses that are so small, they can't afford to have a full-time in-house counsel. So I have a retainer system um, or I can bill hourly and my clients can call me whenever they want, whenever they have an issue or they want me to give them an opinion about how to address something. Uh, I frequently get calls when they need business planning advice. And so they need somebody to bounce ideas off of for how to mitigate certain risks. Um, If they're taking on an employee or taking on a new client Uh, I review a lot of their contracts to make sure that we are mitigating as much risk as possible for them. My goal with those clients is usually to keep them out of the courtroom. I see. I see. Um, So what's like one of the most unique cases that you've had? Well, probably the most recent cases that have been unique are my subchapter five bankruptcy cases that I've been involved in. Uh, Back in 2020, we implemented a a new provision of the bankruptcy code. It's called the Small Business Reorganization Act. And that developed a subchapter five under chapter 11, which is specifically designed for small businesses who uh, it made it easier, cheaper, and more efficient for them to reorganize their debts under chapter 11. So what we've started to see is a lot of people who struggled during the pandemic, they borrowed money to kind of stay afloat or to keep their people employed. And now we're starting to see them have difficulty servicing their debts. 
And so the SBRA is a way for them to continue operating, reorganize, and they can do it a lot more cost effectively. Before the SBRA, it would have cost them fifty, maybe a hundred thousand dollars to file a bankruptcy. Now it costs them about fifteen to twenty. So that's a big change. That's a huge change. Huge. It's probably the most brilliant piece of legislation that's been passed since the two thousand five changes to the bankruptcy code. So, what do you think the biggest thing that um, you help small businesses in being proactive? I like making sure that we have the proper contracts in place to protect them, to mitigate the risk of liability, uh, mitigate the risk of litigation, and also to mitigate the risk of of tax problems later on. Right. Okay. So um, it's kind of like, so if you had someone that doesn't have a corporate attorney and never They've just kind of ignored it and put it off. There's kind of a thing that you don't know what you don't know. If that one thing that you could tell that person, what would it be to help inform them about their business legally? Well, a lot of people who come to me for business planning advice, there are two questions I'm going to ask them. You know, can I see a copy of your articles of organization? And most people these days have LLCs. So my follow-up question is always, can I get a copy of your operating agreement? And most of the time I get a big deer in headlights look. (laughs) Because what a lot of people don't know is it's real easy to incorporate a business, particularly in an LLC. It's a one-page articles of organization that you file with the Secretary of State. But if you don't have an accompanying document called an operating agreement, your business is now being governed by statutory law. So whatever your state statutes say your business needs to be operating by, that's what you're supposed to be doing. Whereas if you had an operating agreement, your business is governed by the rules of the operating agreement. So statutory law may or may not be the way you want to run your business. But most people who come to me do not have an operating agreement. They've never heard of it. They don't even know what it is. And so they want me to draft some other contract which I can certainly do, but they usually also need an operating agreement to make sure that in the future, no matter what happens, these are the rules we're playing. Oh, wow. Wow. So um, as far as the legal system, what do you see as the biggest problem with the legal system or a process or something that you could change if you could? If I could change anything in the legal system, I would probably try to make it a little more uniform. The biggest challenge every lawyer has is, uh, you know, each individual judge may apply the law differently to the same set of facts. And if you could standardize that in some way so that we could make it a little more predictable about how the court's going to rule on certain issues, that would be ideal, you know. Not every judge knows every law on the planet. Not every lawyer knows every law on the planet. But if your judge doesn't know what the law is and isn't humble enough to ask the lawyers what that law is and how to, you know, how its application uh, applies here, it makes it really difficult to predict for your client what the outcome of your case is going to be. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I imagine, I imagine the legal system is probably like the tax code. It's just so thick and deep. It's 
hard to know it all. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, when every single person may interpret, you know, the statute differently, it makes it even harder. It's also why it's really important when you hire a lawyer that the lawyer is familiar with those local judges who who might be governing over a case one day so that they can say, you know, Judge Smith is going to say this about this clause and Judge Jones is going to say this other thing. So maybe we draft the clause a certain way so that we can get the result we want, regardless of which judge we get. I see. That's interesting. That is interesting. Um, So what do you like best about the legal system on the flip side of that? Well, I'm a rules person, so I like that there are specific rules we're working around and a specific set of guidelines. If you're familiar with the rules and you're familiar with the guidelines, and again, most importantly, familiar with how the judges are going to apply those rules and guidelines, it makes it a lot more fun and a lot more accurate when you help somebody. That's me. So as far as your law firm itself, what do you find in outside of like the legal part of what you do daily? What is the hardest thing you find about your business? Probably the same thing all of my clients tell me on a daily basis, which is it's hard to find and keep and retain good help. Nobody can do this this practice alone. No one. And it is really difficult to uh, keep good people on your payroll and keep them coming back for more. Uh, I am fortunate that I have an incredible staff who's worked with me. Oh, God for maybe 15 years now. And I've I've had a slew of other people in and out, but at at the end of the day, um, my primary paralegal, you know, she trained me when I was a baby lawyer working in private practice. And so we have a good relationship and her job uh, at my old law firm was to train all the employees. And so it's nice that, I mean, it's a totally different skill set than being uh, a legal assistant or a lawyer, um, because lawyers are not trained how to train people. Right. So you have processes in place, and it probably took some doing to establish all those. Um, how did you develop that, and how do you develop yourself? Uh, it only took about 15 years, and <laughs> it's still a work in progress. <laughs> So I think you said uh, at one point you've got a business development coach. (laughs) What do you think of the value of that? Oh, yeah. Um, If I had it to do all over again, I probably should have had the business development coach from the very beginning Um, because I only hired one a couple of years ago and she really helped me become much better at talking about what I do, not only to lawyers, but my friends and relatives and the general public. I've been, she's helped me articulate what I do, how I do it, and who I'm looking for in a client much more effectively. I see. So advice for new attorneys, uh, that would probably be part of it. But what other advice would you give a new attorney going out on their own? Um, have a plan. I mean, I can't tell you how many young lawyers come to me and they want to talk to me about opening a practice and I sit down with them and I spend an hour and I usually spend about 30 minutes 
trying to talk them out of doing it. And if they don't run for the hills, <laughs> then I go, you know, okay, now I will help you. <laughs> you don't want to scare them, right? Scare them to death. <laughs> well, you know, sometimes sometimes they get scared off. And it's like, if you're scared that easily, maybe this isn't isn't the right thing for you. Right. But if you're, if you're going to stick around after 30 minutes of me convincing you how horrible it is, <laughs> right. then I'll tell you how great it is. And one thing I like to do in that last 30 minutes is give them advice. And if you have not shown up with a legal pad or a phone or an iPad or a way to take notes on what my advice is, you know, I'm going to leave you with the names of at least five other people you need to go talk to. And if you don't have anything to write it down with, or if you don't follow up with me the next day to find out who those people are and how to contact them, then I don't know if this is going to work for you because you really have to be a self-starter. You have to be proactive and you've really got to have your act together in order to keep things, keep the wheels moving. Somebody's got to keep the wheels moving on the car. And a lot of people just show up and they just kind of think they're going to go be a lawyer today and hang out their shingle. And they really have, no idea what it takes to run a business. They have no idea how they're going to get clients to walk in the door. And, you know, what's what's challenging to somebody 15 years into their practice is not what's challenging two years into opening your practice. When you open your practice, the only thing you're worried about is how to make your phone ring and how to keep it ringing. And 15 years into your practice, if you've been focusing for 10 years on how to make the phone ring, all of a sudden, your problem isn't how to make the phone ring. Your problem is how do I service all those clients, service them well, and keep the wheels turning? Right. Yeah. You get overwhelmed probably after so many years, and then your processes have to come into place for sure. Yeah. Yeah. So um, what made you choose small business law, contract law, estate uh, planning, business succession over other practices of law? Well, I I started in private practice as a bankruptcy attorney, and I was dealing with consumer bankruptcy cases all the time. And the longer I did that, the more I realized the people I really enjoyed helping were small business owners. They typically lived in the suburbs, and there were a lot of blue-collar businesses and I just liked working with those people. And so as I opened my own shop, I knew I wanted to service those clients. And I found that when they came to me, if I did a good job and I did it cost effectively, they would come back to me again and again and again with their legal issues. You know, the next thing they needed, you know, I saved their business by negotiating a contract for them, or I saved their house by renegotiating their loan. And all of a sudden they would come back to me and they're like, well, now we need to sell the house or now we need to rent the house or now we need to open a business or now we need to sell the business. And so it gradually evolved into what it is now where I have repeat clients who operate maybe multiple businesses at the same time. And those businesses all need service. There's always a legal need there. That's a huge challenge. Um for sure. So you have a client that has multiple businesses. What's that look like on, on help and service that? And um, what's the daily activity look like for helping someone with multiple 
corporations or businesses? You know, typically people who own more than one business, um, we've got two motivating factors usually. And one is mitigating the risk for each business and mitigating your taxation on those businesses. So, for example, I represent a lot of people who own uh, different pieces of rental properties. And sometimes it's better off for each individual rental to be in a different LLC. Um, we frequently uh, form holding companies and then uh, we can file things called a series LLC where each individual rental property is in a separate business so that if one of those entities is exposed to liability, the whole house of cards doesn't go falling down. The liability is isolated to that one individual property and that one individual business. So each rental would be an individual corporation? Sure. One, two, three Main Street is different a different business than three, four, five Main Street. So, and then explain a little bit about the holding companies and how that works. Typically, explain they're... To the people who don't know what a holding company is, explain that a little bit. A holding company is really, when you think about owning a business, you're really talking about almost like a, a separate person being in the room. So you might be in the room personally and individually, and then your business is another person in the room. And if you own multiple pieces of property or involved in multiple businesses, each one of those businesses is a different person in the room. And so if you want to isolate your liability for one incident happening on one with one business, you really need a whole bunch of separate entities for the different businesses that you have. For example, if you inherited your family farm, maybe the land for the farm goes into a trust and maybe the operations of the farm is run out of an LLC. I see. I see. So with that, a situation like that, there's a lot of tax planning that's got to go into that. Um, Can you explain a little bit about that? what you would do to help on the tax side of it, how you would possibly work with the CPA? Sure. I mean, in a perfect world, my client would come to me with uh, uh, who already has an accountant who's very well informed of their personal financial situation. If they don't have an accountant already, I do have referral sources. Um, I have great bookkeepers. Um, I have an accountant that I love um, who works really well with all of my small business clients. And we have releases that we can get on file so that we can communicate with each other very freely. From, From a tax planning standpoint, If they don't already have a tax plan in place, I like to work very closely with their CPA and financial planner so that we can mitigate those tax consequences as much as possible. And depending on what their personal financial situation is, that's going to uh, help us make a determination as to if they need a trust, what kind of trust they need, if they need a business, and what kind of business they need. I see. So... Um, Let's talk a little bit about business succession. So that would be a scenario more than likely where either someone wants to sell their business or they're retiring and want to sell it. So what does what's a common uh, give us a common example of what that looks like? Probably the the number one thing we have to determine when a client walks into my office in that situation is, am I representing you as the business owner you as your individual membership interest in that business, or am I representing the business? Sometimes the business already has a corporate attorney. 
And the business owner really just needs somebody to go into that room and not look out for the business, but look out for them personally and make sure that they are getting everything that they're entitled to under the terms of the operating agreement or the bylaws of their corporation. So um, my experience with some of this is that there's always been uh, contracts put in place where like the business owner would stay on for three years and get compensated almost like an owner finance. Are you involved in a lot of stuff like that as well? We see a number of those agreements on a regular basis. Um, I'm working on one right now that is, he's actually not staying on. It's just a true buy-sell agreement. And, you know, we've had to bring in a business valuation expert. And, you know, I like to review the finances to make sure that what the business valuation expert is saying, well, that kind of makes sense. Yeah, you know, I can see that. It's a lot of cash flow analysis, particularly in businesses that don't have a lot of tangible assets. You know, if you if you really need a business valuation because the primary asset of your business is the goodwill, well, that's going to be a pretty arbitrary determination. Right. So, you know, one business valuation expert might say one thing and another might say something completely different. Have you gotten more than one valuation? Sometimes they like them. Sometimes they don't. I mean, a business valuation could cost anywhere between $2,500 and $10,000, depending on what you're valuing. Oh, wow. So uh, what would determine getting a second one if you don't, is it something that you don't feel the first one is is accurate or? Correct. It's always important. You get the business valuation. Your lawyer needs to review it and say, you know, something's off here or that looks pretty accurate. That's exactly what I was thinking. If you're on two different playing fields, you probably need a third expert to come in. I see. So what would you say to someone? I I had, I had this experience with a client a few years ago and um, we were trying to help him. He wanted to retire and he was just shutting completely down and he was in business for 25 years and I was trying to help him understand that you can sell that business. That would be beneficial for you. And nope, I'm just shutting it down and I'm selling equipment. He was in commercial plumbing. But if you saw that person, what would you um, articulate to them to convince them that they might be able to get some money out of their business for selling it? You know, first I would want to understand why they want to close down the business. You know, is he sick? So he doesn't have time to sell it. What is the reason? What documents are also in place that govern how the business is going to be liquidated or dissolved or sold? I mean, do you even have an agreement? And then it's also good to help them understand that even if they don't know anyone who might buy that business, there are business brokers that exist in the universe and they make a commission off the sale of these businesses. So it's to their financial incentive to sell your business for top dollar. And wouldn't it be worth a conversation with one of those people to see what they think? Particularly if you give them a timeline for when they need to complete the sale, right. you know, they're going to work for that. Right. That's really good advice there. That is really good advice. So you're in Kansas City. You're not very far from the state line. Um, are you... I'm, you're probably licensed in what, Kansas and Missouri? I am. I'm licensed in both. I'm also licensed in the District of Kansas and the Eastern and Western Districts of Missouri Federal Courts. 
I see. Okay. Um, anything else that you'd like to add about your practice? Well, I am a one-stop shop and I really enjoy working with a lot of small business owners. I feel like, you know, I used to practice consumer bankruptcy, which kind of gave you the warm and fuzzies when you would help some little old lady or, you know, save somebody's house. And now I still get the warm and fuzzies because I feel like I'm really saving people's jobs. And if I can help Joe the plumber, you know, set his business up right and have the proper contracts in place to protect his business, I'm not just protecting that business, but I'm really protecting the 15 people he's employing. Yeah, well, it sounds like, you know, even though you're a one person shop, it's you have a resource team, a network of people that can solve a lot of problems that are specific experts in those fields or parts of law that can help your clients as well. Absolutely. And I'm not afraid to ask other people for help. And I'm not afraid to tell you, I might not know the answer to that question, but I will find out and I will get back to you. And I don't make things up as I go along. <laughs> excellent. Excellent. So, uh, Betsy, tell us a little bit about how people could find you and how to get a hold of you and where you're located. Sure. I'm at 2015 Grand Boulevard, uh, right next to the Western Auto Building. Uh, you can find me online. Uh, my website is lynchsharp.com. I'm pretty active on LinkedIn and Facebook, and you can find me on social media. Awesome. Awesome. And you have a phone number there? Oh, yes. 816-434-6616. That's the important part, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Okay, Lindsay, well, it was great having you on today. Um, we'll be in touch, and thanks for being on Case Closed today with host Sean Kuntz, a certified financial fiduciary. Have a Thank great you, day. Sean. You too. Thank you for listening to another episode of Case Closed, the Contingency Fee Podcast. We hope you enjoyed listening to this week's guests and their insight. If you liked what you heard, please consider subscribing wherever you listen to podcasts. Case Closed, the Contingency Fee Podcast is led by industry experts who unlock insights from the nation's top contingency fee attorneys. Each week on the show, the guests share how they got started, secrets of their success, and what's working in today's marketplace. Guests on the Case Closed Podcast include successful contingency fee attorneys that will share their secrets so you can close more cases. Tune in each week for a dynamic conversation about winning legal strategies that will grow your business. 